This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dave Zirin from Edge of Sports. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the cultural conversation, you need to subscribe to the nation's newest newsletter, Books in the Arts. With this newsletter, you'll receive a curated selection of the nation's latest cultural criticism, along with a short essay exclusively for newsletter subscribers written by the Books in the Arts editors themselves. Don't worry, we won't clog your inbox. This world of books, art, music, film, and more will be delivered to your inbox every two weeks. It's something worth looking forward to. Subscribe to this thought-provoking, agenda-setting newsletter at thenation.com slash book newsletter. That's thenation.com slash book newsletter. All one word, subscribe today. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a former coach who now runs an organization that is, and I quote, a social justice education firm that uses conversation to educate and empower those within athletics through an anti-racist lens on issues of race, inclusion, intersectionality, diversity, and equity. Her name is Jen Fry, and I'm very excited to learn what that's all about. Also, I have some choice words, just stand up and just sit down awards and more. But first, Jen Fry. In your own words, please, what, what does your organization do? So Jen Fry Talks is a social justice firm that focuses on educating and empowering those with an athletics through an anti-racist lens. And I'm very specific about athletics because I was a college volleyball player and I was a college volleyball coach. I was a college volleyball coach for about 15 years. I coached all over the U.S. I was a head coach. Um, I coached at Washington State. I coached at Illinois. And I coached at Illinois in um, 2011 when we played for a national championship. And so for mm-hmm. me, what I realized was that um, diversity, equity, and education wasn't being talked about within athletics the way I wanted it to or the topics I wanted it to be talked about. I felt like it was talked about a little superficially and like, okay, here's this thing, check the box, now go coach. Versus something of saying, we as coaches and administrators need to really critically look at how we interact with black and brown people. We need to really center the experiences of black and brown people and really just change the whole narrative of how DEI is not just something on the side, but it's actually something that's integral to our job. Mm. Can you give um, an example of a time where, you, where you've done this work and whether it was you felt like it was successful? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of two parts. I think whenever I have a white person email me and they're like, oh, shit, 
these are things I never thought about. Like we never talked about race with my parents. And to me now I realize that that was a privilege, right? We never talked about this. I never had to worry about these things. And then when a black coach or athlete emails me and they're like, thank you for talking about my experience. Thank you for mm. giving this space for this to happen. And so I think both are really critical, right? If only white people are like, oh, you do an amazing job. I'd be like, oh, am I really pushing as hard as I need to? But when black people are like, okay, thank you. you like you're really digging in. We, we appreciate this. This is not the superficial box checker we, we thought it was going to be. And I'm like, and that's what really makes me feel better is that uh, both sides are equally seeing kind of the work. Right. White people are being pushed in ways maybe they never thought about, because we have to understand as the U.S., like we don't talk about whiteness. We don't really talk about like white people. We talk about everything but that. So now that we're actually saying white people are like getting super upset. What well, I'm not a white person. I'm like, yeah, you are. We, we're all racialized. You just have never had to think about yourself as racialized. Where black and brown people. All they do is think about how they're racialized and how it affects all the nuance, like all the integral movements, right? Things that as a white person, you never even have to think about, but we are always having to consider and not only consider, but worry. Is this thing going to get me arrested? Going to get me killed? Going to get someone thinking I'm not in the right place? Like all those things that white people normally don't have to think about, we are always, always thinking about and have that weight on our shoulders. So it, it really, um, you know, it, it, it's that. It's anytime people are like, I'm starting to look at myself in a different lens that's when I'm like, okay, this stuff we're kind of pushing forward. Now you did a Ted uh, X Duke talk called radical social justice education through high fives. Uh, do explain please. Yeah. I just felt like, you know, whenever we all sit down to the table to do DEI stuff, we're, we're all sitting, you know, people are tend to kind of have this, go, this guard up of like, okay, how is this going to be? What is this going to do? And for me, it was kind of like just starting out with the high five of like, hey, we're both human and we're all going to be talking about really uncomfortable things. And it's just bringing this authenticity to the, to the table and openness of like, hey, just give a high five, just like you do normally. And it's very interesting to see how that kind of relaxes some people, right? Of like, okay, we're, we're starting off, we're doing some human interaction. Um, you know, we're, we're, Act, we're, we're acting in ways that normally you don't do in DEI sessions. Is everyone sitting there, everyone doing their work, right? Head down, not really having that human interaction, that human connection. It's just kind of a way of breaking down barriers because it's like, we're going to talk about some really hard and deep stuff, but just start with a high five. Let's, let's get, you know, usually get some laughs, some giggles, and then it just opens up a little bit so that we could push just a little bit harder. Mm. Now, um, I want to ask you about whiteness within sports um I, I saw something that you wrote where you said whiteness within sports is stopping everything we want to push forward and i was wondering if you could speak about that within a sports context we don't talk about whiteness enough right if we look at um the nfl owners was it like 28 of 32 or 29 of 32 are white um 31 of 32 Oh, excuse me. The data, 31 of 32. Um, the data on NBA owners, what is it? 30, the same, like the same type of 90, 95% are white? 29, um, 30, yeah. 29, 30. MLB owners, same thing. NHL owners, right? So like we have to acknowledge, especially when we talk about NFL, NFL is 69.7% black. Mm -hmm. The NBA is probably 80% black. So we have to talk about how whiteness is kind of like this overarching umbrella and everything trickles down in it. 
And many people don't think about that. It's like, who controls the power? Who controls the money? Who controls the narrative? Who controls the media? Thinking of whiteness in just a, a totally different lens, because many times we don't talk about whiteness and how it's the foundation of how we expect athletes to act, how we expect athletes to talk, what we expect athletes to talk about, what is determined by professionalism. You know, we think about how many athletes are always in the media about their hair. The, the, um, the Penn State um, football player who got the letter about his hair. Right. That's an epitome of whiteness. You need to play a sport. That's going to make me money and you have to dress and look this certain way. How many mm. times have people talked about all of these black athletes and what they look like, right? Their, their hair, their clothing, it's unprofessional, all of this stuff. And we have to talk about like that's just centering whiteness and making anything that um, deals with blackness, something different and really something that's very anti-black and something that shouldn't be happening, right? Yes, you can play the sport. Yes, you're making money, but you still have to be within these parameters in order to be thought to be thought of as like one of the good people, right? Oh, look, look at how they're dressed. They speak so eloquently. Okay, that's a person we can keep, we can keep pushing through. But oh, this person, oh, they're, look at how they're dressing. Oh, they have locks. Oh, they have an Afro. Oh, we, we have to figure out how to tailor their image because it's not going to be something that's going to be palatable to, to the owners to, you know, no, we have to stop talking about that stuff and really kind of look at like, what does anti-blackness, anti-blackness look like under the umbrella of whiteness and, and really white owners, white, um, the GMs, coaches, especially players need to talk about whiteness more, right. And talk to white, talk about whiteness to white athletes. Black people know what whiteness looks like, but white people don't. And so it needs to be more of white people gathering white people and be like, hey, we need to talk about this thing that's the foundation of our country, even though it's black sports, it, it's the foundation. We need to talk about it more to bring it up into the air. Can you talk about your interaction, the story about your interaction with Megan Rapino um, on this question? Oh, you know, that is... <laughs> I love Lisa Maker and Pino. Um, yeah, it was super random. I feel like my life is about randomness. And, and we were, um, I was at the, the Delta Sky Club in Detroit and I was sitting there eating before a flight. And, you know, I see this woman with purple hair coming and I'm like, holy shit, that's Megan Rapino. And no one else in the Sky Club even notices her. I'm like, how do you not notice this amazing person? And I'm always very wary of going up to people just because I understand they're human. They want their personal time. But I'm also like, this is a pretty awesome human. And so I go up to her and she's at the buffet. And it sucks because she has her earbuds in and she's looking away from me. And I'm like, this is going to be so awkward because she doesn't see me standing next to her. And I don't want to like put my hand and be like, hey, Megan. But I also like, I'm like, how do I do this? So I like kind of gently poke her. I'm like, hey, Megan, I apologize for interrupting you. I just explained that, you know, what my company does. And I just appreciate the conversation she's had. And, you know, I, I mentioned something about whiteness and she's just great. Takes a picture with me, you know, life moves on. And then I'm sitting there eating and like, she has a plate and she's walking towards me. I'm like, there ain't really nowhere to sit. And she, she comes and she's like, Hey, can I sit and chat with you about whiteness? I'm like, what? Yes. You know, I like throw my back to the side and, and she just asked some great nuanced questions about whiteness in relation to athletes. And I just appreciate that because it wasn't this thing of like, you know, um, let's talk about black people. It's like, no, let's talk about whiteness, my own identity and the things um, as a person 
in my position can chat about more. And the one, like I, I told him, like, just as a white person, talk about whiteness, to, to mention it, to make it this ongoing thing, a commitment to talking about this ongoing topic. Because the more we can talk about it, the more we can normalize it, the more we can change it. Because you can't change a system you don't even know exists, right? There's, whiteness is this structure that, no, that it, it's done such a great job of being invisible. And as long as it's invisible and it's not talked about, then we can't destroy or even think of what building a new one looks like. How did it go from you talking to Megan Rapino in the Delta Sky Lounge to you being mentioned in that amazing article about Megan Rapino where she was the sports person of the year for Sports Illustrated? Again, it was random. Um, I think there was some tweet thread about Megan Rapino. I just tweeted my experience. And um, Jenny from Sports Illustrated, who's a phenomenal person as well, just DMs me. It's like, hey, I saw you had this interaction with Megan. Can we chat about it? I am... Um, doing this article for her for Sportsman of the Year. I'm like, absolutely. So she and I get on like this 45 minute conversation and just chat about the experience. And um, I, I just think it's just such a great, another great interaction with Megan that shows that she's just such a, a boss ass lady, right? And so it was just a, a cool thing that Jenny allowed me to do. That's fantastic. How can people um, get in touch with you, Jen, to learn more about the work? Yeah, just follow me on social media um, at Jen Fry Talks on all aspects. Um, you know, I do have, you'll, you'll see me on Snapchat or TikTok, but I, there's no videos up, Dave. I don't know about you if you have one of those accounts. I'm too old for that stuff. I'll hurt myself. Oh, way, way too old. Oh, my God. Listen. <laughs> someone tried my to see kids would have me off it. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine trying to, like, Snapchat or TikTok. I just like watching the yeah. videos. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just Jen Fry Talks. Email also genfrytalks at gmail.com. Um, I love hearing from people and chatting. I think um, the more we can talk about whiteness within athletics and especially get athletes talking about it, right? Like right now we're seeing so many black bodies being murdered and we just see the videos. Please stop mm. sharing the videos. Like if, if someone's sharing the video, tell them not to. It just, it just glorifies black death and black murder. Right. And so then it's always expected that black athletes are going to talk about it. Right. LeBron, what are you going to say? Candace Parker, what are you going to say? NFL athletes, what are you going to say? And it's like, leave them alone. They got to process this shit. We all have to. Right. These folks got black kids that they have to worry about their safety. They have to worry about their own safety. It's a time for white athletes to move to the top and say, hey, we mm -hmm. need as white athletes need to be talking about whiteness more and pushing this. Because the more we can talk about it, the, the more it's normalized for our fans. And it's not like this one-off thing of like, oh, what is this athlete talking about? But we're normalizing the conversation. And I think it's like Pop, you know, Greg Popovich, like, man, that man is phenomenal. And what he just talked about with um, Bodie and everything, he just, he's great. And he is normalizing the conversation and pushing forward. You know, Steve Kerr has done some great things about it. And so I think the more white coaches, white athletes or even saying, like, I am starting to recognize I am racialized. I am starting to recognize my whiteness and how it's helped me and how it's pushed me forward. The more it can be talked about. But if they're not taking that first step and saying, yeah, I was uncomfortable in realizing I was racialized. I was uncomfortable in my black friend saying that I had privilege. I was uncomfortable with these things. But now I'm starting to realize it and educate myself. That can that has so much weight, right? All these young white athletes are going to be listening to them and watching them and start educating themselves. And so I think it's right now we're we're getting a disservice because white athletes, you know, they'll talk about diversity, 
but they're not saying like, what does whiteness mean to them? And really starting those conversations. Mm. You know, it really is something like these coaches like Popovich, Kerr, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Nash. I mean, yep. like the influence they're going to have over white fans yes. when they speak out it can't be undervalued too. Cause, and that, that's so important. Well, uh, Jen Fry, yeah. this is so fascinating. Is there anything else we're missing that you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, when we talk about whiteness, understand that, like, this shit's tough, right? Like, I'm asking you, Black people are asking you to critically think about your, your yourself in such nuanced ways that you've never had to think of yourself, and the educational system has made sure you don't think of yourself in this way, right? It's this underground foundation that people don't see, and so the work is hard, it's uncomfortable, and it's going to make you feel shameful and guilt. That's the way it's supposed to do, right? That's the way the system is, is that if I make you feel shame for thinking of yourself as white, for seeing race in different ways, then you're the wrong person. And so getting over that shame, right? We've been socialized for our whole life to think of black and brown people as race, as racialized and white people as not, right? Which is why you hear the, the thing of like black people play the, ident- the, um, the race card, that black people are playing identity politics. And I think naming that, right? Why is it only black and brown people play the race card or identity politics, but white people don't? Like what? And so I think, you know, especially white people, when um, you're on social media and you see all the crazy racially coded language white people will use against black and brown people, especially now, right, with all these murders saying that they're thugs or, you know, on welfare and all that stuff, like that's when you push back and it's scary. But if you're not pushing back, then when are you going to push back? And knowing that you're only going to build the experience when you actually do the work. You can't wait to think you're going to have all the knowledge and then do it. The experience and knowledge comes while you're doing it, while you're pushing back against your white grandma, your your white uncle, right? Your best friend's partner and what they're saying is problematic. And, and that's how you do it, right? When I see more white athletes and white coaches consistently pushing back against these narratives, um, these racially coded words being used, that's when we're going to be seeing, um, you know, more push forward and, and starting to understand what whiteness looks like. But they can't be afraid to talk about it. Because if they're afraid to talk about it, it's putting the weight on the black athletes to talk about it. And they're the ones that are literally getting beat over the head in social media, right, in Twitter. What are you talking about? You're making millions of dollars. You get to dribble a ball. You know, what are you talking about, white people? I've had it. You know, you're a millionaire. I don't make any money. And, like, all of these narratives. And so I think it's, like, really putting more pressure on on white coaches and white athletes to speak up and understand, like, yeah, you're going to be scared. That's okay. But that's really a part of doing the work is educating your scared. Uh, excuse me, educating yourself, being scared while you're doing it, but understanding that you can't just say, well, I have black teammates and black friends. That's not it. It's about saying, what what harm am I creating and I didn't even know? So therefore, what do I need to educate myself on? And what things do I need to start speaking up about that are causing them harm and putting weight on them? Mm. Uh, and Jen, you know, I ask everybody this on my podcast. Um, what music are you listening to? What's on your playlist? Dave, like when I tell you the excitement I had that I was like, I'm going to be asked this music question, you know, and oh, I mean, I did you hear the answer? So usually like, I think you, you probably play like, a, like a minute and a half of, of the song, right? Like it's kind of your outro oh, yeah. just enough. I need you and I'm going to ask a lot, but you know, I think right now I, I need you to have like four or five DMX songs to play out. 
right? I think like we need to just hold that man up so high. That man who passed away was like, I mean, he was the, he was the boss. He was such a great guy. And I think he just humanized, right? Addiction. He, he humanized life. He humanized so many aspects that um, black males and black male rappers are usually dehumanized. Man, we lost a great one. You know that. We lost such a great one. Yeah, that one hurt. That that one really hurt. I mean, even in this time of of so much death, and I mean, it just he he, he was really special and underappreciated. I think. Oh, you see some. Yeah, you see some of these young kids who are like DMX. He hasn't had a song since blah blah blah. Okay, and but the song he had changed people's lives. Listen, yeah. Dave, when you. Rough Riders anthem came on? Shit. Oh, different world. Different world. Mm. Right? And right. Who We Beat, which we played a little bit of last week, which is my all-time DMX track. Yes. I saw him live, and he did Who We Be, and it was unbelievable. Like, everybody in the crowd going, then it, then it was unbelievable. Like doing that with like five thousand people in a club. Oh my gosh! How was he live? Oh, unbelievable! Unbelievable! The best live shows I've ever seen. Really? Mm-hmm. Owned the stage. Unbelievable. He um, Rough Riders were supposed to come to Charlotte maybe like three, about four years ago. And we had the tickets. When I tell you we were ready, and then they canceled. You know, I, I will say. Um, I'm a huge music fan. I, concerts are my thing. Um, probably, I'd say my biggest two regrets are not seeing Prince in concert because I was um, in Vegas quite a few times when he was um, when he was there, residence, and I just didn't go. And then missing out on Rough Riders and DMX, especially like those are like my two biggest, uh two biggest regrets. We share the Prince one because I went to college in the Twin Cities. I met Prince at a club. Yeah. Um, yeah, when Morris Day and the Time were playing, um, and I was always, I always thought there'd be time. I was, I'm a huge Prince fan. I always was just like, oh, I'll get to him. I'll see how him live was, at how some point. Oh, his aura was off the chain. Like it knocked me back six inches. Um, really? It was like I'm, I'm, I'm there watching Morris Day, and I see this dude walk by me who looks like a football player, like six five, two eighty. And then I see this dude behind him who looks like a football player, six. 5280 and I'm just looking at these two huge guys and then I notice there's a little dude in between them and cuz he's 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 not not a tall man and so I say your prince <laughs> he looks at me and he says, yes I am and I said this is amazing and he says yes it is and then he <laughs> Jen it's great to talk to you you too, Dave. I so appreciate you taking this Saturday morning to have a chat with me. We'll be in touch, okay? Thank you, friend. Um, Y'all have a good day, okay? Yeah, you definitely. Please. Bye. Be safe. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, 
the police killing of Dante Wright just outside of Minneapolis is creating reverberations throughout the sports world. First, the Minnesota Twins, then the NBA's Minnesota T-Wolves, and then the National Hockey League's Minnesota Wild all canceled their games. And they didn't do it out of fear of riots, as some sports writers erroneously and inexcusably tweeted. Here's the statement that the Twins issued regarding their decision to postpone last Monday's contest against the Boston Red Sox. Out of respect for the tragic events that occurred yesterday in Brooklyn Center and following the additional details in this evolving situation, the Minnesota Twins have decided that it is in the best interest of our fans, staff, players, and community to not play today's game. The decision was made by the Minnesota Twins after consultation with Major League Baseball and local and state officials. Information regarding the rescheduling of today's game and corresponding ticket details will be released in the near future. The Minnesota Twins organization extends its sympathies to the family of Dante Wright. Statements that followed from other teams were similarly vague, but still significant. These statements are a critical sign of the times. Sports teams are realizing that performative gestures just aren't going to cut it anymore. Not with players and not with young fans every league is desperate to attract. By canceling the games, the executives and owners of these franchises are acknowledging that reality. The cancellations happened for several reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that Minneapolis is in a profound state of crisis, with the killing of Dante Wright taking place during the trial of George Floyd's killer, Derek Chauvin. The Twin Cities and surrounding areas are already on edge. This latest outrage could push things right over, especially if it looks like nobody gives a damn. It has fallen to Major League Sports to send the message that this problem is so significant that the game simply cannot go on as usual. The other reason teams took this step, I would argue, is the influence of the players who refused to take the field last August following the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They laid down a marker, withdrawing their labor in the face of injustice. In Minnesota, teams are getting ahead of that possibility. As difficult as these times are, the move shows just how much has changed in less than a year. And even if the league's statements aren't as strong as anyone wants, it's striking that these owners are even aware of the world outside their arenas. Compare that to the 1992 LA rebellion against police brutality, when the sports world barely blinked. It's blinking now. The question that looms is what impact canceling these games will actually have. It's understandable that some would be cynical. But by taking this step, teams are at the very least doing something that I would describe as puncturing privilege. The white fans of these teams may have the luxury of not caring about Dante Wright, of not even learning his name. But there's no turning away from this when SportsCenter is leading with this story and your game tickets are, at least for one night, worthless. But sports can and should do so much more than cancel games. The next step is for these politically connected franchise owners to agitate for some kind of police reform. Few, if any of them, however, want to step in front of the cameras and confront the police. But that's next. Many players and fans, as this crisis continues, are going to demand nothing less. 
We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now's the time for the part of the show I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to two people who actually have both been guests on the show. WNBA player Laisha Clarendon and journalist Brittany De La Creta. Now, Brittany De La Creta just wrote a big article for Sports Illustrated about Laisha Clarendon and Laisha Clarendon being non-binary. It's an amazingly written article that looks at the issue of how it feels to be non-binary in a sports world so divided between boys and girls. Now, the article, you just have to read it. It's in Sports Illustrated, SI.com, Brittany De La Creta, Laisha Clarendon. It's a terrific piece of journalism. Just Stand Up Award for y'all. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Is, I mean, it would be so easy to make the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Just call it the Brett Favre Award and move on. Because that uh, dumbass Brett Favre talking about how, you know, sports and politics should not mix. Everybody I know doesn't watch the NFL anymore because it's too political. First of all, I don't believe that for a second. Second of all, you sexually harassed people when you were a player and sent unwanted pictures of your genitalia to them that got on the internet. I would call that distracting. Please, Brett Favre, sit your ass down. But I want to do another sit your ass down award. This is courtesy of listener Tom Baker, who said to me, Rob Martini, who is the president and CEO of USA Cycling, in response to calls to move or boycott the 2022 Cyclocross World Championships in Arkansas due to that state's anti-trans legislation, this is what he said. It would be different if our athletes were going to be affected, but we don't believe they will be. My God, that's like an anti-solidarity statement. Ugh, Rob Martini, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, Jen Fry. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. Thank you to all of you, the listeners. If you like the show, give it a rating. Go to your podcast app of choice and give it a rating. Write a little comment saying, yo, I dig this show. If you do that, by some complex algorithm I could never hope to understand, we'll get some more listeners. So for everybody out there listening, mask up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.